Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hey everyone, welcome back to the OnScript Podcast. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. I'm a host along with Matt Bates, Drew Johnson, Aaron Heim, Chris Tilling, Amy Brown-Hughes, and Jules Martinez-Olivieri. We are a collective interested in the intersection of biblical studies and theology. And we also have another spinoff podcast called The Biblical World Podcast, and that focuses on the history, culture, archaeology, and geography of the Bible. So you can check that out on our website, onscript.study forward slash biblical world. A quick reminder that at the annual meeting of the Society of Biblical Literature and American Academy of Religion, we're going to have a live OnScript event hosted by none other than IVP Academic Press. And we're going to have a, a fun time there on the 22nd of November in San Antonio. Stay tuned for more information, or you can look on our events page on our website. And I'm just going to check real quick. Is that what it's called? Yeah, events. We've got an events page on our website. And as soon as we have the details on that, we'll put them up there. But you might want to keep that date open if you're planning to go to San Antonio. So that's November 22nd in the evening at 9 p.m. We're going to have an event at some local joint where we'll have a live recording and get to connect together and with you. Okay, enjoy the episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to On Script. This is Matthew Bates, co-host along with Matt Lynch, Drew Johnson, Aaron Heim, Chris Tilling, Amy Brown-Hughes, and Jules Martinez. Welcome, everyone, to On Script. We're trying to keep you abreast of the best of recent biblical and theological scholarship. The Irish poet William Butler Yeats is famous for his line, Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. An apt word for our time. Given the tectonic shifts in culture and Christian engagement, we wonder what will remain after this shakedown. What tools are at our theological disposal to help us preserve the good and faithfully rebuild? Theologian Joshua McNall is with us today. He wants to offer the church a tool to consider. The tool is perhaps. Not uncoincidentally, we're speaking about McNall's new book. Welcome to OnScript, Josh. Matt, thanks for having me. Well, I guess I should say welcome back because uh, you're an OnScript veteran. Uh, We had you before talking about your book, The Mosaic of Atonement. Um, And we enjoyed you so much that uh, we want to have you back to talk about perhaps. Well, I don't think I've been on quite as much as, uh, what's your, 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 your all-time record is held by the esteemed, what is it, hmm. professor? I don't know. That's a good question. We've had a couple uh, multi-guests. I'm sure Scott McKnight's been on there more than once. Uh, Joshua Jepp. Uh, yeah, yeah, but you're one of the well, few um, that we've had. Uh, and uh, yeah, I appreciate your work. Um, so... You kind of uh, have a hat tip towards James K. Smith uh, in as sort of a, a motif that runs throughout your book. You modify the very famous slogan in Christianity, faith-seeking understanding, uh, to something a little bit different. Uh, and you have uh, your difference would be faith-seeking imagination. I think a hat tip there to Smith, right? Um, what's the difference, and why does it matter? 
Yeah, the, I mean, faith-seeking imagination, of course, you know, with Anselm's faith-seeking understanding, um, I'm locating a kind of middle ground between what I call these two warring extremes in our culture, but also in our church. And the two extremes are a kind of crippling secular doubt and a kind of angry religious dogmatism. So doubt and dogmatism. And I think some people might say, well, there is a different middle ground there. It's the middle ground of faith, you know, and you've written a fair bit on that and uh, allegiance, pistis, all of that. And so what I'm doing with imagination is saying, yeah, we could locate faith between crippling doubt and angry dogmatism. But in some ways I see faith more as an act of the will, whereas imagination is, is something a little bit different. And it's a kind of, uh, it's an asking what if, it's a speculative form of reasoning that is slightly different than faith. And so I'm asking what's the place for speculation in theology in the Christian life? And I'm connecting that speculation to the imagination. As you know, speculation is kind of a dirty word in theological circles, probably biblical studies circles as well. You know, to call somebody's work speculative is is almost never a compliment. Uh, and so I'm kind of pushing back a little bit against that and linking a certain kind of speculation to a redeemed Christian imagination. Yeah, very good. Faith-seeking understanding, the understanding part kind of leans in the dogmatic direction, right, which is one of the poles that you're um, you're trying to, on the one hand, uh, say that there's room for dogma in the church, there's room for skepticism in the church to a, to a degree or doubt, right, but that um, a more helpful place um, might be one where we can say perhaps and use uh, speculation as a tool. Um, so in, in your book, you introduce us to um, Eliza Johnson. Who is she and why is she critical to what you're trying to achieve and perhaps? Yeah. One of the more unique parts of the book is the weaving in of this fictional narrative about a, a college student by the name of Eliza Johnson. And, and she's a, a fictional character. Uh, it's not based on a true story at all. Uh, and my reason for doing that is I think form needs to match content. And this is a book about the place of the imagination in the Christian life. It's a book about the polarization in our culture and in the church. And so I thought it was fitting to to write a fictional narrative that kind of weaves in between the nonfiction chapters. And so Eliza Johnson is a young lady who um, goes off to a, a very conservative, we might even say fundamentalist Christian college and begins to sort of lose her faith. Uh, we, I mean, the language of deconstruction is, you know, a word that gets thrown a lot, uh, thrown around a lot now. And she's sort of caught up in the vortex of our polarized culture, partisan politics, um, doubt and dogmatism. And so her story weaves throughout the book in between the nonfiction chapters as a kind of uh, a kind of leaven mixed into the bread, so to speak, to uh, to match form with content. Yeah, I appreciate what you're doing there as it, it does sort of awaken the theological imagination. And hey, you pull it off pretty well. Like it's, it's it does create a nice little narrative um, thread through um, 
through the story. And I appreciate that you gave up front, you know, sort of the anti-spoiler alert, you know, that um, that the hero in the story wasn't going to be, you know, a professor that swoops in with a red cape, you know, and uh, comes dashing into the scene to give her all the right answers. Um, uh, and uh, you were tempted in that direction, right? Uh, uh, but uh, I wanted to set some but, uh, limits for yeah. my own narcissism there. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yes. Um, but what about my narcissism? I mean, because I could have imagined myself as that professor doing that. I, Aren't you concerned with my narcissism? There's no, there's no limits there so far as I know. <laughs> um, yeah. And so uh, anyway, but that's something that I think I, I um, in reading your work, really appreciate is um, is that, that, you know, there's a, there's a real attention to the craft of, of, of writing um, and you kind of, you know, try your hand at some fictional components uh, to, you know, as you as you say, have the form match the content. Um, and that's something that I, I think that I would like to hear a little bit more from you on as part of the, the craft of your writing process, um, because there's not everyone who writes in this field including myself, uh, that can kind of draw so readily on, you know, John Steinbeck's East of Eden and William Shakespeare's, you know, Romeo and Juliet and, uh, you know, and uh, you have Chesterton and you you, you, you have uh, C.S. Lewis and a whole mixture of voices uh, that you manage to weave into your your story. And often you use it as a framing, right, for a chapter um, to, to try to say, like, there's something going on that I want to discuss that might look a little bit like what we see in Romeo and Juliet, for instance. Um, how do you how do you uh, go about your craft, right? Um, how, as you are uh, doing the writing process, do you look to integrate? And I and I ask this partly because I know a lot of our listeners are writers as well, and are always we're always trying to improve our craft. Um, how do you um, seek to be so uh, literate, I suppose, in in uh, in your writing style instead of didactic? Well, I, I mean, I appreciate the compliment. I don't know that I always pull it off. Um, this is the first time I've tried to write fiction. So uh, I think the best training for me for for good writing, um, insofar as I have good writing, is good reading. And to really read broadly, to read works of fiction and history uh, alongside works of biblical studies and theology and philosophy, and uh, and so for me, that's been, I think, the best help in sort of trying to learn to write well and to write clearly um, has been reading. And I enjoy reading. I enjoy reading those those great works of literature that you mentioned. And I, I kind of pair up each of my final three chapters with a great work of literature and allow that work of fiction to sort of inform the the question of theology that we're we're looking at. And so I think in terms of my process, I'd love to read. I've always loved it. And I think the best training for good writing is sort of broad reading, but there's also a kind of a theological or apologetic sort of method to the madness. And I think insofar as this book does have a certain apologetic aim, I really am passionate about people who are kind of falling off the map of Christian faith, so to speak, you know, the nuns, the the challenge of deconstruction and the way in which political polarization feeds this sort of slide toward um, agnosticism. I think our apologetics have been informed in, in the past almost exclusively by sort of rationalistic streams and not enough by aesthetic uh, streams, that there is this argument from beauty that can be employed and has been to great effect throughout the history of the church. And so I think works of fiction, even from authors who are not necessarily 
Christian in any sense of the word can be utilized in the church's task of pointing to God um, by means of wonder, beauty, mystery, um, pathos, alongside some of the rationalistic um, methods that we employ. So I'm trying to kind of balance a certain kind of apologetic with with the use of literature and art to point people to Christ as well. Well, very good. Um, and I think uh, your, your work speaks for itself as those who pick it up and read perhaps will see. Um, you're onto something in terms of how you, you, um, you put together your, yeah, your scholarship and your fictional reading. Um, let me introduce Josh a little more fully. Joshua McNall is Ambassador of Church Relations and Associate Professor of Pastoral Theology at Oklahoma Wesleyan University. After planning a Wesleyan church near Grand Rapids, Michigan, Josh completed his PhD at the University of Manchester. Since then, he has penned several books, including a free corrector on Colin Gutten and the Legacy of Augustine. Uh, long story short, and The Mosaic of Atonement, a book I've already mentioned, um, as well as the book that is under discussion today. Perhaps he and his wife, Brianna, have how many children, Josh? Yeah, four. So not as many as you, but, you know. Yeah, well, you know, I, I would encourage you to be fruitful and multiply. Keep going as the Lord permits. Um, you discern that before the Lord, though. Uh, and uh, But, uh, yeah, that, that does keep one busy, right? And, uh, and uh, so you really also, um, you, you do a lot as you have a podcast of your own. Uh, and your podcast is? Uh, it's Outpost Theology. Outpost Theology. I've, I've, I've been there hanging out uh, with Josh at least one time, I think. And, uh, and he also blogs uh, on his website, joshuamcnall.com. So check all that out. Now, there are several books that have come out recently, uh, Josh. So yours isn't alone in the field that is dealing with issues of doubt and trying to maybe redeem doubt to a degree. We've got uh, Pete Enns, The Sin of Certainty. Um, we got Gregory Boyd's The Benefit of Doubt. Um, what do they get right? And maybe um, maybe even more importantly, um, where do you think you need to press them to go deeper? Or in a, maybe there's something you need to supplement or nuance um, that allows us to, to, um, to move further along the road. Well, you know, doubt is a topic that's in vogue. And you mentioned a couple of those uh, books over the last few years. And I think the thing that Inns and Boyd get right is there has been this tendency within the church, especially in evangelical circles, to sort of uh, vilify or demonize doubt. And so students or anybody who is wrestling through a season of doubt has had this sense that, oh, I can't talk about it or I'll be sort of shunned or judged or as like a bad Christian. And so I think the thing that Inns and Boyd get right is we do need to have a more nuanced view of doubt. Um, and, and so they talk about sort of, you know, one of those titles you mentioned, the benefit of the doubt, how doubt seasons of questioning can actually be beneficial to one's faith as we wrestle with the claims of scripture and, and how they bear upon our lives. And so doubt is not always a bad thing. Uh, and I think the scriptures have far more room for questions and uncertainty than sometimes uh, evangelical churches have had. And so that's the, that's the sort of benefit that those texts offer. On the, on, on the other hand, I think they need to grapple a little bit more fully with the way in which scripture speaks of doubt. In our, at least in our English translation, it's almost never spoken of as a benefit or as a positive thing. And so I think sometimes the pendulum has swung too far away from the demonizing 
of doubt to the kind of valorizing of doubt uh, as this, uh, you know, this thing that shows you that you are more mature than other people. You've seen through, you know, the veneer of whatever we're talking about. The, and, and so while there is the truth that doubt can be beneficial in certain ways, sometimes the pendulum has swung too far to sort of valorize deconstruction or pervasive skepticism in a way that's actually not biblical or not helpful. And I'm not saying those two books that you mentioned have necessarily gone so far as to do that. I I wouldn't go quite that far, but I think there does need to be a little bit of a balancing that takes place between the demonizing of doubt and the kind of valorizing of it. And that's one of the things that this book seeks to do with attention to the scriptures and to the Christian life. That's helpful. And so, I mean, I think on the, there you kind of, um, speaking on the kind of two poles you're trying to avoid and you're trying to land in the healthy middle space, like one pole would be an excessive doubt or skepticism, right? Um, what does the other pole sound like? If we land too hard over on the other side, which would be dogma, um, what does it sound like to land too hard there? What's the effect for the church if we land too hard on the dogma uh, end of the spectrum. Sure. Yeah. I mean, the, again, the, the subtitle of the book is reclaiming the space between doubt and dogmatism. And so the other pole or the other extreme is, is what I call dogmatism. And I'm not, I'm not talking about dogma per se, these sort of bedrock commitments of the Christian faith, like, you know, the deity of Christ or the doctrine of the Trinity or anything like that. When I speak of dogmatism, I'm really talking about a matter of tone and emphasis. And so by tone, I mean this tendency toward a kind of shrillness, a kind of angry partisan rhetoric that has infiltrated evangelicalism from political spheres uh, and and whatnot. Uh, Tonal dogmatism is how we speak to each other, especially in online spaces. Um, yeah, you put it in, I th- think in the book, you, you say all that, and you also say it's it's also the all caps, yes. right, uh, <laughs> that we see, uh, yeah, in, uh, in a lot of social media conversation. Yeah, so it's this tendency to speak always in all caps with hot takes and sort of things that maybe generate clicks, but not much fruit in the life of uh, the listeners. And so that's one side of dogmatism is the matter of tone. But there's also a matter of emphasis. And in terms of emphasis, I mean these claims to certainty or certitude on issues that maybe we ought to hold a little bit more loosely. Um, and I, so I talk a lot about, you know, faith is not the same as this sort of mental certitude or this rationalistic certitude. And so by dogmatism, I, I really do mean those two tendencies. First, the tone of partisan shrillness. And secondly, claims to certainty that maybe are not rooted so much in scripture, but in the need to be right or the need to feel sort of better about our beliefs and and sort of claiming certitude where we where we ought not. Well, one of the things um, I think that is an obvious, um, like, I guess, result or upshot from your work would be. maybe in a, uh, uh, an appropriate way of dealing with um, Christian matters of indifference or adiaphora, right? The things that are, um, maybe we just can't ever get to certainty on. Um, 
But it would be a mistake to say that that's really what your book is trying to do. You're trying to put perhaps forward as an analytical tool beyond just saying like, okay, well, there are always going to be matters about which Christians disagree. Um, so speak to that. Speak to the utility, I guess, of um, of how of how your book is a, a tool. Yes, to deal with issues of you know maybe about which we could never disagree. But but how is it? What's it seeking to do beyond that? How do how are you deploying it? Yeah, I think maybe one way to approach that would be to talk about where the title comes from and uh, the epigraph for the book is a line from N.T. Wright in his big Paul and the faithfulness of God uh, somewhere deep in the second volume. There, uh, he says. Sometimes believing in providence means learning how to say perhaps. And he talks about how even the Apostle Paul did not have certitude in so many cases until in retrospect, kind of recognizing the divine hand at work in retrospect. And so Wright's claim is that we need to reclaim that little word perhaps within the life of faith. Sometimes believing in providence means learning how to say perhaps. And so what I'm advocating for is not this sort of wishy-washy what ifery, you know, where we're just saying, well, maybe, and then just throwing out possibilities that allow us to sort of just keep all options on the table. Uh, but rather, I, I employ it as a tool in kind of two specific ways. Uh, for one is for those of us who are wrestling with doubt or uncertainty, I employ it as a way to move from where we are to stretch out toward uh, the truths of the Christian faith. Well, what if asking that kind of question so that we can actually land in a place of Christian faith or even orthodoxy, because that's the kind of the, the branch of the, uh, the, the greater church that I would reside within. So it's reaching out towards these great sort of truths that the church has always held. And so there's a kind of apologetic value right there in the use of perhaps. The second would be the use of the term as a way to address matters of adiaphora or indifference. These are not matters of orthodoxy, but they are matters that are important as we approach the scriptures and we have questions. And so how can speculative um, and imaginative reasoning be employed there as we approach questions that are not you know, like bedrock questions of the faith, but still of interest and concern. So those are the kind of the two ways in which I think that word can be helpful. While at the same time, I have a whole chapter there on guardrails, um, because I think clearly speculation or what ifery can be problematic. And so we need some, some guardrails to our saying of perhaps to keep us from sort of plunging off the cliff, so to speak as we're going through life. Yeah, and we'll, I'll give you a chance to, um, to lay out some of those guardrails in a few minutes. Um, before we do that, though, why don't we try to make this a little bit more concrete as we've been talking in pretty generalized terms. Um, you lead us through the example of Jephthah in um, the Old Testament and um, why his faith ends up being deficient in some way, but Abraham's pleasing to God. And then I think you even draw on Kierkegaard a little bit there as a conversation partner, um, both probably in appreciation and critique. Um, how does um, how does this help frame what you're trying to do and perhaps? Yeah, you know, one of the, our sort of forefathers, so to speak, to draw on the kind of biblical language of Abraham, um, 
my kind of exemplar in the saying of perhaps is actually Abraham in Genesis chapter 22, the Akedah, and where at least in the book of Hebrews, it talks about how Abraham reasoned. Different translations say different things. The sort of logisomenos is the Greek term, but he, you know, he reasoned or he considered or he reckoned that God could even raise the dead. And so he was willing to obey when God commanded him to offer up his son, Isaac. And that reckoning or reasoning or considering is this act of um, what if, you know, he's, he's having to postulate or posit something that's far from certain, it seems, you know, that God would raise his son from the ash heap underneath the altar. And so where Jephthah comes into that conversation is Jephthah is kind of the dark doppelganger of Father Abraham because he too offers up a child um, in sacrifice. But in my view, obviously, this, Jephthah is a horrible, horrible um, story because I think he, he shows you where the dangers of sort of this religious fervor devoid of knowledge, devoid of understanding of the law, the, the, the heart of God can go wrong. And it ends up if you, you know, if you believe that Jephthah actually sacrificed his, his daughter, which I tend to, uh, it results in the unnecessary death of, of his child. And so I use uh, Jephthah and Abraham as these two case studies um, in the Akedah and the, the sacrifice of Jephthah's daughter, of the perils of sort of our religious reasoning in the face of practical, um, weighty, real-life decisions. Well, thank you. I think that, um, yeah, you do a good job of showing how um, Abraham's theological imagination, right, allows him to see possibilities, perhaps, um, uh, and to remain faithful in a way that Jephthah just doesn't seem to exercise the same sort of theological imagination. Um, let's jump to a speed round here, um, and then maybe we'll, we'll, we'll talk about some guardrails. All right, so I have two speed rounds for you here. Here's the first one. Uh, what's your favorite vehicle you've owned? Oh, man. I had a 1968 Ford Mustang Coupe, which was my first car. And uh, it actually, I don't know if it, I mean, it, was a, it was terribly unreliable. The brakes didn't work. I'm probably lucky to be alive, but uh, I still love that car. <laughs> yeah. Well, understandably, a 68 Mustang. Yeah. That's pretty yeah. sweet. All right. Um, what's something you find awkward? Awkward. Wow, man. Awkward. Well, sometimes these podcast conversations are awkward when you're talking to somebody you've never met before and you don't know if you can be, uh, you know, you're ridiculous and silly or if you need to be serious, like you're interviewing some esteemed, you know, um, Ivy League professor. But I don't I don't get that sense with you, Matt. So I appreciate that. You don't consider me esteemed. Well, that... We've talked about your narcissism, your uh, <laughs> your, many, your many children. We, we've built a bridge there. Yeah, well, mo most uh, most narcissists are probably highly esteemed in their own minds, <laughs> at least, right? Um, so, uh, what's a trend in society that scares you? Ah, well, I talk a lot in the book about this trend towards polarization, partisanship, angry rhetoric, talking past each other, and I think we're seeing kind of the 
um, the kind of rotten fruit that that produces where churches are splitting and uh, family dinner tables are divided over uh, especially issues of politics and uh, masks and all of the hot button issues in our culture. Uh, I think I wouldn't be alone in saying that's something that is uh, distressing to me. Do you believe in ghosts? Uh, you know, I would say it's a matter of adiaphora. <laughs> I am a Wesleyan. Can you use your can you use your perhaps theological imagination perhaps, to speculate? Perhaps there are something? ghosts. I, I'm I'm open perhaps, to that. Yes. Uh, John Wesley yes, definitely maybe. believed in ghosts. Uh, fun fun fact from Wesleyan theology: he thought that there was one living upstairs in his attic, and they even had a name for for the for the family ghost. So I don't know if I would be a good Wesleyan if I didn't at least entertain that possibility. All right. And this one's one you're going to like. What are a few best fiction reads for you recently? Because I want to hear this. I mean, I'm like, I'm like uh, taking notes here very carefully. Yeah. Well, last time, I think I even kind of got you onto Cormac McCarthy a little bit, maybe. You did. Um, yeah, you did. And I've, I've read a few and I, I I'm like currently it. reading um, sort The of. Crossing yeah. by McCarthy because I think. Yeah, I just, I actually just read that you, one. Uh, so. Your Facebook or whatever was the impetus for that. I saw you reading it and I was like, oh, oh I need to, yeah. I'm really early in that. So I don't know if I like it yet. Well, I, I like the first part better than the second, like not to demotivate yeah. you, but. Uh, no Country for Old Men, I read recently on a, on a 15-year anniversary trip with my no wife. For Old Men. Who's, who's that's, that? No Country that's for Cormac Old Men. That's Cormac McCarthy as well. Oh, it's McCarthy Yeah, also. I read that okay. on a 15-year anniversary okay. trip with my wife, which if you know that book, it's not exactly what you would consider <laughs> like a, a joyous like beach read, uh, violent and dark, but a certain be- there's a certain beauty in McCarthy's prose in spite of the content. And so that maybe that that's probably my favorite recent read. Even though I had seen the, you know, award Academy Award winning movie, I had never read the book. Um, my favorite of all time is probably still East of Eden by Steinbeck, uh, which I, I draw upon in, perhaps I draw upon that as we talk about the question of uh, divine predestination and determinism and Romans chapter nine. And I, I use Steinbeck as a conversation partner for, um, for that whole discussion. Well, um, s- getting back into the meat and potatoes can here. I, can I ask um, you a, a lightning oh, round question? Oh, oh, oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. So this is, as a longtime listener of the OnScript podcast, I have always had this question and I wanted to ask kind of an expert. So at the beginning of the OnScript podcast, I'm sure our listeners heard it, there is a a lovely sort of British female voice that comes on and says, uh, you know, welcome to the OnScript podcast. And and so the question I've always had from the very first time I heard that was, I had this sense that was sort of like, I don't know if that's a real British accent. I have no idea where we got that from. I feel like You'll it's a fake British accent. It, it, it may be. You'll have to ask Matt Lynch because I don't know where that came from. Like he 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 got that somewhere and uh, and sent it to me and was like, "Is this okay?" And I was like, "Yeah, it sounds great." Well, it's you very know, sophisticated. You know, and yeah, you know how British accents make they, they just raise the IQ level of anything. Yeah, it may be all synthesized. You know, it may be like you just type it in. These are the words we want 
it to say and it just produces it i have no idea where like if 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 he has a if he has a female you know british friend that he got to i don't know where that came from well i want matt to so. email me and i want i want answers for the british <laughs> yeah. accent because i just had i'm not an expert on british accents but i've always thought yeah. that sounds like a fake british accent and i i want to know Could if be. i'm wrong or if i'm right in my uh it could be a synthesized mechanical British accent, for all I know. It could be a bot. It could be a bot, yeah. All right, so uh, so uh, guardrails. We were about to talk guardrails. Um, how do we have a healthy, perhaps, then what kind of boundaries do we need to put around it in order to make sure that we're not just, you know, deconstructing because that's the trendy thing to do and saying perhaps and being skeptical because, yeah, that's a trend. Yeah, uh, there's a there's a chapter in there where I kind of lay out uh, basic some basic guardrails to the saying of perhaps, and I I won't go through uh, all ten of them. Uh, ten commandments, you know, kind of seemed fitting, but I use the analogy of kind of like guardrails on Mariah because the the biblical paradigm for the saying of perhaps is the Akedah and Abraham, uh, you know, going up Mariah in this dangerous act of obedience. And so the question is, you know, when you're, when you're going up these precarious mountain roadways, guardrails can be helpful to keep you from kind of going over the cliff to your, to your death. And they don't necessarily always stop that because you can go careening through a guardrail, but they can be helpful. And so if we're talking about sacred speculation, which is one of the other ways I talk about the saying of perhaps, then the question is, well, what are some guardrails to sacred speculation that keep us from really careening into dangerous territory? So one of the ones that I mentioned is the need to be clear about what you are unclear about. Um, this, this need for clarity on issues where we just don't have clarity. Uh, another one is the need to meet what I, I meet. Uh, I say we, we need to mean our maybes. Sometimes perhaps or maybe can be used as just a dodge to avoid critique or to entertain unhelpful uh, forms of speculation, um, what ifery kind of run amok. Uh, another guardrail that I, I mention is to beware of what I call the heresy of apologetics. And I don't mean that apologetics is necessarily heretical. But I look through church history, I have a, a chapter on the saying of perhaps in church history, and I note how in a lot of cases, apologetic motives actually end up in problematic conclusions as we're trying to defend the faith against perceived opponents. And so um, I look at origin of Alexandria, I look at Jonathan Edwards, um, as kind of exemplars of that, not to necessarily, I'm not necessarily saying just flatly that they're just heretics, but uh, apologetics can be a problem in the saying of perhaps because in, in the attempt to defend against opponents, we often overreach in our um, conclusions. And so there's, those are just a few of the guardrails that I mentioned in that chapter as sort of cautions in how we exercise sacred speculation to keep us from going over the cliff. 
and, and related to that, I, I, I think it was one of your guardrails. It might have been somewhere else, but uh, it, it's related to what you said. Don't play the mystery card too early, right? Um, as um, there's a temptation to do that, right? As um, we just say, well, you know, like the, the ways we got are mysterious, deeply mysterious. Well, it's like on the one hand true, but on the other hand, um, not helpful theologically often, right? Yeah, we can't use the mystery card as a way to excuse incoherence or just flat out contradictions. Uh, and so I think there is a point where we ultimately end up in the realm of mystery, but we need to try to hold off on the playing of that card until the right time instead of just slapping it down on the table uh, sort of preemptively to avoid critique or uh, to get around incoherence. Well, I'll say my favorite part of your book was the last part on um, on how we put perhaps into practice where you did three test cases. But my second favorite part, I think, uh, was uh, your uh, story of Science Mike um, and Science Mike's um, deconversion narrative and then his um, what we might call um, rediscovery in the waves uh, or something along those lines, um, although um, he might be outside the bounds of you know, normal Christian orthodoxy at this point. At least that's an open question. Tell us a little bit more about Science Mike. Let's start with his deconversion um, and um, tell us about what this, how maybe perhaps um, relates to issues of emotion, affection, rationality, and um, yeah, how this might be a tool to help um, in the in the face of doubt. Yeah, well, I think as we know, if you follow kind of Christian subculture, deconversion stories are everywhere. You know, I guess you, of the writing of deconversion stories, there is no end. Uh, and sometimes they even are kind of monetized uh, as a way to perhaps in some cases uh, even kind of continue celebrity status or... Yeah, are you talking about like selling deconversion kits? I, uh, I, I wouldn't be... <laughs> of course not, of course not. Um, <laughs> uh, everybody needs to make a living, including myself. Of anybody, <laughs> of anybody who's, you know, I can't think of anyone who's done that recently, uh, sold deconversion kits. So anyway... Yeah, um, there's a lot yeah, of deconversion ahead. stories out there, but I, I came across uh, his... Mike McCarg is his name, and he was a incredibly conservative Southern Baptist who went through a season of deconstruction, doubt, and then sort of clandestine atheism where he became an atheist and felt like he couldn't even tell his wife and children um, because of just the the sense of, will I, will I be disowned? Will I be, you know, this, and... Uh, what, caused, what caused that deconstruction for him? What were well, the sources? I think the sources that he mentions are sources that my students and just my friends mention all the time. Um, one of them is questions from the realm of science. Um, and, you know, he went by science Mike for a long time because of his uh, sort of armchair love of science. And so questions about uh, anything from evolution to astronomy to, you know, how does science fit with the claims of scripture? And um, especially if you grow up in a very kind of narrow, maybe biblicist or fundamentalist context, science is oftentimes seen as kind of the great enemy. Um, and I do think there is a danger of what I call scientism, where this presupposition that all of life's big questions can be answered by science, which I think is, is of course, false. But for Mike, science was a big uh, uh, part of his 
deconstruction. For a lot of people, sexuality, to kind of continue with the S theme, um, this sense, well, if the Bible says that certain um, sexual practices are sinful, how does that mesh with real people that we really care about? And, uh, and so I think for Mike, just like a lot of people, science, sexuality, and I don't have an S, S word for this third one, but uh, partisan politics would probably be the third uh, sort of force that is driving a lot of people toward doubt and deconversion. And those three factors are not unique to Mike. And that's part of the reason why I chose to focus on his deconversion story, because they mirror the questions um, that so many of my students and others have. One of the things you point out, though, is that there, um, on the one hand, it would seem that those were all questions that were driven by reason, but that doesn't seem to be the full story. Um, press, press into that a little bit more, and especially like one of the things I remember from your book was um, the discussion of Carl Sagan's photograph. Well, and this isn't an observation that's entirely unique to me, but you mentioned Jamie Smith's name earlier, and Smith talks about the extent to which we enlist reason to back up decisions that were made with our gut. And uh, I think that's true for a lot of us, um, but our rationalistic explanation for things, uh, reason is important, but it's not the only factor in play in these deconversion stories. And you mentioned Carl Sagan's photograph, the, the famous photograph, Pale Blue Dot, which uh, is the title of his book kind of on the um, the cosmos, which I believe is, is co-written with, with Sagan's widow. And he has this incredibly powerful and poetic passage where he invites the reader to look at that pale blue dot. And I won't try to quote it from memory because I'll, I'll mess it up. But then essentially what what Sagan does, and then his widow, Andrewian, comes in later to talk about that same thing, is to say, once you've, once you've seen that pale blue dot and how, how incredibly small it is and inconsequential in the vast tapestry of the cosmos, how could you possibly believe that, that there was a creator God who created this whole thing uh, for this one species, human beings, to be, you know, sort of... Uh, his image bearers and, and just in the scope of the cosmos that Christian faith is refuted just by virtue of looking at that pale blue dot. And um, Mike says in his book, Finding God in the Waves, when he recounts his deconversion experience, that that passage was what tipped him over the edge from doubt to atheism. Uh, that pale blue dot experience where he's like, yep, that's right. There can't be a God, you know? And what I note is that from a sort of evidential standpoint or rational standpoint, Sagan's argument or Druyan's sort of gloss on it that she adds in the next chapter is actually quite poor. Like it's actually not a great argument against Christianity to say, see, look, the universe is really big. Therefore there's no God. Uh, and I, I liken it to claiming that, you know, because the Library of Congress is really, really big, Shakespeare can't have written Macbeth. You know, and whether or not Shakespeare wrote the book, the size of the room in which the book is housed, it actually doesn't have any bearing on, on his authorship. Um, but the argument by Sagan, and Dr it does still have power. It, what it has is a kind of aesthetic 
or poetic power that plays upon the sense that I think almost all of us have as modern people that we are kind of drifting alone in the cosmos, inconsequential, and that Christianity can't stand up to some of the scientific advances and understanding that we have now just by virtue of being um, modern people. And so the argument needs to be understood in its power, but it's not a rationalistic or a scientific power. It's more of a poetic or aesthetic power. And that connects with something that a lot of people have noted from the philosopher Charles Taylor, that arguments from science, oftentimes when they're leveled against Christianity, there are some arguments that are very difficult and very serious that have to be grappled with from science. And I don't want to discount the, the difficulty of those. But sometimes the power of those, quote, scientific arguments is not actually um, in the scientific reasoning, but in the sort of emotional, poetic, or aesthetic feelings that they bring up within the gut of the one who's wrestling with them. And there's this sense of maturity or grown-upness that comes with scientific arguments that actually, in some cases, outstrips the actual evidence and causes us to sort of really struggle with our faith. And that Carl Sagan example is just one example of uh, the sort of poetic and aesthetic appeal of certain, quote, scientific uh, arguments. Yeah, and so I think a lot of what you're trying to say, as best I understand it, would be that, um, yeah, that there's an emotional or an effective um, kind of um, part of the process to these deconversion experiences for many, many people. You speak about how science, Mike, for instance, like his father and mother were going through a divorce. He, he tried to speak to his father about it, and his father was not heeding any Christian principles. And this really put him, science, Mike, perhaps in an emotionally vulnerable state where, yeah, things were able to kind of emotionally compound um, maybe beyond reason. Right. And um, and that affected his process. And so what you're trying to do is say that that's just the reality of who we are as humans. We're very much emotional and and sometimes our emotions need to be. Um, yeah, like brought in line with our reason as part of a whole process. And we need to work in the other direction. Right. We need uh, we need to be aware of how we can also. Um, yeah, use beauty and truth and aesthetics and the tool of perhaps, right, as a way of, um, yeah, creating a different kind of an emotional environment, one that might help them to um, to go deeper into the Christian faith or to at least hold open possibilities, right? Um, and so we need to mobilize that kind of effective or emotional dimension um, for our good ends, right? As, um, as we're working to try to help people stay within the faith. Yeah, yeah I think that's right. Um, and so, yeah, Science Mike's deconversion is not the end of the story for him, right? He does end up finding God in the waves. Um, yeah, you might um, speak a little bit more about that. But also, I, I thought um, your analysis of his sort of um, where he's at now and his sort of split brain reconversion, you found to be... Um, yeah, maybe not fully satisfying. Um, and uh, what what would you say to somebody who um, is in Science Mike's position today to try to help move them to a better place maybe? Um, or yeah, go ahead and speak to that. Well, you know, Mike's first book, Finding God in the Waves, is about this, uh, his deconversion, his kind of deconversion from a kind of 
very conservative evangelicalism to full-fledged atheism and maybe scientism would be a a good way to describe it, a kind of Dawkins-esque approach to um, the world at large. But he underwent a profound um, supernatural experience where he he describes being at a, a conference voicing his sort of critiques of religion and Christianity. And then rather than being shouted down, he was welcomed and and loved by those at this conference. And then he recounts this sort of inexplicable experience where he, he says he heard Christ speak to him. And on two occasions, this sort of supernatural, inexplicable experience of of Christ's love for him that landed him in this awkward position of, um, well, I guess I am a an emotional or experiential Christian, despite the fact that all of my rationalistic objections and problems with Christianity still exist. And um, yeah. so the, hence the split brain, right? On the one hand, his effective, you know, dimension, he's a Christian, but on this intellectual level, like he's almost not, or I, that may be an unfair way of summarizing, but I'm trying to cut to the chase. Yeah, no, I think he describes it in pretty much that way uh, that he experientially and mystically, he's a follower of Jesus, but on a rationalistic level, he's still essentially an agnostic or an atheist. And and so he employs, because of his science um, passion, the science of sort of split brain theory, um, where, and I am not a scientist, so I hope, uh, I hope I'm not, <laughs> I cite the literature here, but I'm not a scientist. So since we're an age of everyone pretending to be scientists, I, I don't want to do that. But research that basically suggests that um, human beings, because of our divided hemispheres of our brain, can harbor these sort of split tendencies. And then science, you know, scientists ascertained a way to kind of ask questions of particular hemispheres of the brain. And they could do that through a complex um, sort of system of experimentation and found out they were getting different answers to the same question, depending on which hemisphere of the brain they were asking. And even questions of do you believe in God? Uh, and so Mike says that that sort of split brain science helped him to reconcile his own experience where feeling like part of him is a Christian and the other part of him is still an atheist. And so I use that story, Mike's story, to connect with something that we see in scripture. A lot of the biblical references to doubt speak of the 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 two-souled person, the person with a kind of divided soul or divided heart. And, and many of those passages are actually a, a kind of, they're speaking against that kind of disposition, you know, that we ought not to sort of cultivate that, um, that type of life where we're divided against ourselves. And so my question is, is that split brain existence that that Mike describes, and he actually sort of like, yep, that's just who I am. That's how I am. It's fine. How does that map onto the biblical description of the two-souled person or the person with a divided heart? And and I actually conclude that it's not quite the same. Um, it's it's not quite the same. And and we we may have to be okay at least for seasons with feeling like Mike felt 
in that, in the sort of the resolution of his book. And I actually, not to, you know, sort of toot your horn, but I, I draw upon your work on faith a little bit as a, as more having to do with allegiance rather than... Oh, great. Feed the narcissism, Josh, you know, like keep, keep just blowing the horn. Well, it, it was helpful for me because you have a line in one of your um, books where you talk about faith is not the same as absolute certainty, but rather it's being certain enough to yield. Um, and so I don't want to misquote you or mischaracterize or oversimplify your New Testament work, but um, if we're not really chasing certainty, that does open up some possibilities for us where we give our allegiance to Christ in spite of our remaining questions. And we don't have to remain in this perpetually divided state um, or this state where we just sit on the fence and wait for more data to come in. Um, but that's not what the scriptures hold forth as sort of the ideal of the Christian life. And so even if you feel divided in some of your inclinations or your questions, you can still um, give your allegiance to Christ. And I think in many cases, it is in the, in the act of obedience that assurance comes over years as the Spirit works upon our split brains and our divided hearts. And if we just wait for all the data to come in, uh, we'll never get there. And so uh, I, I don't use Mike's story. I'm not, I'm not like, here's, I'm not like critiquing it or attacking it. It's not, this is not a takedown, even though I would differ with him on any number of issues. I use it because I think he's in a position that so many Christians are in where they desperately want to hold on to some form of faith but are in finding it increasingly difficult for any number of reasons. Yeah. So your pastoral heart um, for Mike would be on the one hand to say that's where you're at and that's where we all end up sometimes perhaps, right? Um, but um, yeah, but uh, your vocation and your obedience, like you're not allowed to have a divided heart there. Um, uh, try, try the obedience route to Christ and see where, see where you end up would be your, your pastoral heart, it seems like. All right, let's do another speed round. Um, you ready? I'm ready. All right, who is your favorite mother or father of the early church? Oh, man. Uh, I'm going to say Irenaeus is uh, one of my go-to, go-to guys. Gosh, uh, yeah, I can't go wrong with that answer. What did you eat for breakfast this morning? I haven't had my breakfast yet. Uh, this interview is impinging. It's food for the soul. It's impinging it's food, on my it's breakfast food for time. The soul. It's all, it's all the food you need. I have food you know nothing about. <laughs> yeah. It's in the free, it's in the fridge right now. <laughs> um, along those lines, uh, why are Cheetos the best snack food? Ooh, it's, I think the the reason is that they, they linger on your fingertips for yeah, the whole it's day. The magic dust. And you, it's the magic dust. You can revisit it. Yeah. No, there's no doubt it's the dust. Is there is there intelligent alien life elsewhere in the universe? Uh, I'm. I, I hate since I wrote this book. Every time I say perhaps, now my students like look at me like, is this a plug or? Uh, I'm going to say yeah. perhaps. All right, uh, your least favorite household chore. I don't like dusting. Dusting is tedious. All right, so your final section of the book, 
practicing, perhaps. You look at several live issues of debate in Christian theology, including animal suffering before the fall, predestining election of individuals to hell slash heaven, and the possibility of progress towards salvation after death, like purgatory-ish ideas or um, maybe universal salvation without embracing those things, but but dialoguing with those topics. Um, so with regard to all these, you find perhaps a helpful tool, and I think you show that it is. Well, let's just choose one of those for the sake of time. Let's probe animal suffering before the fall. Um, why is this a theological problem? And um, let's start there. Why is animal suffering before the fall a theological problem? Yeah, for some people, they're probably like, yeah, I don't think it is. I've never thought about it in my whole life, people might say. Uh, but to start from kind of a pastoral perspective, I begin that chapter with, uh, Charles Darwin, and kind of one of his haunting questions that led him to kind of tip over the edge, so to speak, from some form of Christianity to a more kind of agnostic view of of um, of life. And he, he talks about how, you know, when he was on board the Beagle, he was ridiculed for viewing the scriptures as this moral authority. And yet, as he continued to study animal life, that he his question essentially is, is this, how could a creator of unbounded goodness create a world in which countless lower creatures, animals suffer for almost endless time long before humans even come onto the scene? And so for Darwin, one of his haunting questions had to do with the reality of animal suffering before human life and how that maps onto the idea that God is this benevolent, loving creator. And so it's a, it's a question that matters because especially for those who study science, it's a question that they ask, you know, if there's this loving God, why would he design it that way? Yeah, and you, you do make the question quite pointed with graphic illustrations from nature about some troubling things, like, you know, a, a male grizzly bear who, you know, um, kills a female grizzly bear's cubs in order to, you know, send the female grizzly bear into heat so that he can have cubs with her. Uh, but meanwhile, the, the mother needs calories, and so she eats her own cubs. And this is part of the bloodiness of nature and of the suffering um, that animals experience. Now, of course, there are a variety of answers to that question about, um, yeah, the theological problem. Um, and some you find wanting, some you find wanting partially and you use as a tool. But ultimately, you, you develop Sarah Coakley's uh, sacrifice regained proposal as part of your perhaps. Um, lead us through that a little bit. Um, you could speak to some false trails as, as you wish. But um, what did you find helpful in Sarah Coakley's sacrifice regained? Yeah, well, anytime we're looking at a question of theodicy or, the, you know, the how the goodness... Uh, and the sovereignty of God meshes with the experience of what we deem to be evil or broken in the world. You know, the one of the more prominent roots in that discussion is the, the sort of greater good defense that, um, well, yes, the reality of evil and suffering are they're terrible, but is it possible that some greater good emerges um, in a world that has at least the possibility of suffering? And so what Coakley does is that she looks at the concept of sacrifice as something that potentially could be helpful in helping us understand 
the death of creatures. And it's not hard to see why she might land there. I mean, biblically speaking and across the centuries, animal sacrifice was was practiced. And, and despite the fact that it involved the death of a creature and the pain experienced by that creature, there was seen to be some good that was linked to that sacrifice, uh, atonement or, you know, things like that. And so she asked the question, would it be possible to view the deaths of um, animals even long before the time of humans through the lens of sacrifice. And so I kind of probed that question um, a little bit. And, and one of the things that this book is trying to do is to seek out what I call non-contrastive solutions. And Jonathan Edwards is kind of my guide in some of that. And so I just basically lay out, here's all the different options that are on the table for how we should understand the death of creatures um, prior to humans coming on the scene. And what are some of the ways in which we might link them up with, with one another in order to say, again, this is not a claim to certitude, but well, maybe, maybe, or perhaps this is why a good and loving God would allow or create a world in which these creatures um, suffer even before humans kind of step onto the scene. And so I use Coakley and I, I end up sort of embracing a, a, f- a sort of version of her argument that, that lands in a kind of greater good area. But again, not with the claim that this is the only right answer. It's just trying to think creatively and, and biblically about Darwin's kind of tortured question. Yeah. You're trying to open up a space where we can say, well, perhaps this is what God intended. There's other kinds of perhapses too, but maybe this is the best perhaps we can offer, right? <laughs> well, let's get uh, practical as we wrap up here. Um, as we've already spoken about a little bit about your craft and how um, maybe we can try to cultivate this faith-seeking imagination that you're trying to advocate for, um, obviously reading good fiction uh, maybe is your number one go-to for uh, habits you would encourage. Um, what other habits would you encourage and how do we cultivate these habits of faith-seeking imagination? Yeah, well, I... There is, again, a kind of nod to some of Jamie Smith's work on um, the need for our loves or our desires to be sanctified through certain rituals, certain habits. And uh, I think that that's the case, that um, Christianity is, is not primarily about just dumping in the right information to our craniums, but it's about training our desires through certain practices. And so I mentioned the need to kind of sanctify our imaginations with good art and the need to enlist art in the apologetic endeavor. So we've talked about that one already. We could certainly list other practices, the practice of um, disciplined prayer as something that sanctifies our desires and begins to do work on us at a deep level. Um, the kind of sacrificial service um, habits in which we serve the least of these people who can't give back anything begins to, I think, discipline our, um, our desires. I think to, to sort of feed 
a sense of wonder in a secular and scientific age can open us up as well. And that, that may be done through any number of things. I mentioned art and literature. Uh, I know you like to hike, even with all the, the kids in tow and things like that. A kind of wonder at God's creation, I think, can be important. And it can even, to come back to the kind of pale blue dot experience, I think it's equally possible to look at that pale blue dot and experience a sense of wonder and mystery at the divine as it is to say, oh, there must not be any God because, you know, the universe is really big. And so um, feeding an appropriate sense of wonder um, by virtue of the created order, by virtue of good art, um, all those things I think can be ways in which our, our habits begin to do work upon our hearts and eventually even our intellect in ways that help us to be more faithful Christians. Well, thank you, Josh, for that very helpful pastoral word, and thanks for being on on Script. Thanks, Matt. This is Matthew Bates for On Script. I've been speaking with Joshua McNall about his new book, Perhaps, Reclaiming the Space Between Doubt and Dogmatism, published by IVP Academic. You'll want to cultivate your theological imagination by picking up a copy. There's a link to them on our website, www.onscript.study. Take care, everyone. You have been listening to On Script, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just two or five dollars per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study/donate.